Father, we lift up to you the time that we have here together in fellowship. We pray that you would not unite us as one. That we'd understand what your will is for us today. That we'd glean from your word. We'd understand how we are to live this life. And what our tasks are which are ahead of us. Help us not to be complacent in this as well. Help us to be active, moving forward in our faith and in our discipleship. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm sure everybody at one point or another in here has been in court. Whether it's for traffic. Now, I've never been for traffic. I don't know about you guys. But whether it's traffic. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> yeah. Trying to convince the judge, I'm innocent, judge. You know, and having to do the traffic school, stuff like that. But maybe you've been to court for other reasons. Or maybe you've just witnessed what is going on. Or you listen to the witnesses. And you know, they record all of this stuff in the court of law. They have a stenographer now. I think they probably do it by AI. But a person would sit there and type everything that the witness would say. Here's three examples of a court recorder recording what was said in court. The question was delivered. Are you married? Answer, no, I'm divorced. Question, and what did your husband do before you divorced him? Answer, a lot of things I didn't know about. (laughs) Actual court case. Another one is question to a doctor. How many autopsies have you performed on dead people? Answer, all my autopsies have been performed on dead people. You know, you just get caught up in thinking you're going to ask the proper question. Here's another one. Was it you or your brother that was killed in the war? These are actual testimonies delivered in court. Now, if you were brought up in court for some reason, like they were going to convict you for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Would they be able to say, oh, he is guilty, guilty, guilt, goes to church, you know, he prays, he, he gives, he studies his Bible, he goes to these Bible studies, he's helping the poor, he goes out and witnesses, or, or she does all of those things. Can you be convicted of being a Christian? Or would they say, no, I don't think there's enough evidence to convict this individual of being a believer. So here's Paul. He's on trial in chapter 26 for his faith in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 26 is where we are. And he's accused of being a chief troublemaker, stirring up riots. And he has spoken, they accused him of speaking up against the temple, the law, Moses, and Caesar. And he makes his defense saying, I'm not guilty of any of these but simply for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Now, if you remember what's going on, you have Festus, you have Agrippa, and you have Bernice. And a lot of fanfare and pomp and circumstance. As they came into the room, they sat down, and then they motioned to Paul to speak, to make his defense. And so Paul raises his hands, and he speaks as the crowd quiets down. In verse 1, Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hands and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. 
and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So here's his testimony. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So Paul dictates or he he explains to Agrippa how he lived his life as a believer, bearing testimony. You have a testimony as well. What is your testimony? When you got saved, when you started going to church, when you started to learn about Jesus Christ, how you put that into practice, how you witnessed to others, all of those things. So there was one point in which Paul took a great deal of pride in his righteousness, in his deeds. And he started to tell people of everything that he had done. Now, we can do that as well. But if we start boasting about what we have accomplished in a lot of houses and a lot of offices, you have the, I love me wall. And on that wall are the diplomas, the certificates, the thanks that are placards. All of those things are up on a wall so you can remind yourself how wonderful you are. That's why we do that. And, and especially if you go into a legal office, normally they have their, their uh, lambskin is what they call it. They have it up there in the wall and that's good. But all that other stuff or all the trophies, you know, the sports teams, they like that. In high school, you remember there was usually a sports case that had all the trophies on it and everybody who won a particular CIF event that's in California. Or if you broke records in your particular sport, now, where I went to school, both junior high and high school, it wasn't middle school at that time, there would be a board that you would walk into the boys' gym and you would see the records that were set in track and field, in springboard diving, in swimming, all of those things. And the name would be up there. And you were so disappointed when somebody broke your record because that speaks of who you are and what you have accomplished And if you wanted to prove to somebody that you had done that, you would take them to that leaderboard and they would see that you were in fact telling the truth. But that is called the boastful pride of life. Remember, there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what one has and what they do. And so if somebody would come forward and say, well, you know, I've done quite a bit, and they list off all the three-letter um, alphabet uh, monikers that they have behind their name, a mat, a masters, a bachelors, and you know whatever it is, an MDiv. Uh, if you're a pastor, they, they just list all of those things behind their name because they're telling the world who they are. Normally, when you listen to a debate, a Christian debate on YouTube, they will go through and explain about the speakers. Now, the speakers usually don't say it themselves, but they say. These are the number of books that this person has published, 30 or 40 books or 200 books. This is the journals they have written in. These are the places they have gone. This is where they were in seminary teaching as a professor. This is where they got their doctorate. I mean, they just go on and on and on trying to convince the world that they are worthy to be listened to. The apostles didn't go to school. 
And God still used them. They didn't have the monikers behind their name to point to their degrees. But the Jews prided themselves in that type of thing. Philippians 3 verses 4 through 6, it says, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he goes to explain what he used to think was important. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to keep the Old Testament law? Now, it's impossible to do that, but if you just tried to observe the Sabbaths that were there, And not do any work on the Sabbath, which is Friday night to Saturday night. Not do a single thing out there. Make sure you are tithing off your spices that you buy from the store. And if you got some animals and you slaughtered them and you would take some of that meat to the temple and that would be for the priest. Could you do something like that? Well, Paul said he was faultless in this. He never made a single mistake. But he goes on in that same passage to say in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. So all of his accomplishments, being faultless in his righteousness, he says it's not worth anything. And, you know, sometimes Bible translations, they try to use language that's not too offensive, that, that just doesn't stink, so to speak. And they'll choose a word that is less egregious. And in this particular passage, that is done. Now, when you think of rubbish, what do you think of? You think of the trash can outside. Have you seen the new recycle cans? They want you to put your old food scraps inside the green container out there and they want to recycle that and you open it up and flies and maggots are going everywhere and the smell is just horrendous. If somebody says rubbish, that's what I think of. That's not what the text is saying. In the text, the word, old English word, odor. Do you know what odor means? I'm going to use this word. It's poo. That's what it is. That's what this text is saying. Instead of Paul saying, I consider them rubbish, he is saying, I consider them poo, is what I consider them. So that's the most vile, filthy thing that anybody could imagine that he's calling his works where the world, if you're in the world and you, you're you d- just doing great and you have all these accolades and everybody just loves you, that's the world that looks at the, that and says, you are wonderful. But Paul says that it's meaningless. We can't take anything with us. No doctrine, uh, or excuse me, not doctrine, no degree, no accomplishments are going to follow us into heaven. Death is the great equalizer I think it is okay to talk about what God has done maybe through you as your testimony to others and and when they ask you of that but you shouldn't just go out and start saying your testimony just off the cuff to explain to people how God has used you 
No, that's not what it's about. We're to walk in humility. And Paul, at one point, he was so prideful and so confident that he would go out and kill Christians because of their faith. He was radical in his position. And being a witness for the Old Testament law, he stood strong. But he was wrong about Jesus Christ. Now, imagine somebody who is so staunchly devoted to God and the witness that they can become when they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Think of some people today that are so staunchly against the gospel if they got saved, what a dynamo they would be as far as witnessing for Christ. You know who the new atheists are, the ones who are out there on YouTube and go on the lecture circuit and they debate Christians? Uh, One of those used to be, uh, he is now deceased, Christopher Hitchens. He would go out there, and I, I used to love to listen to him speak. He was great, he was crass, but he did not believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, Bill Maher, he's also one that's just like in the face of those who follow Jesus Christ or any religion, I believe him to be an atheist. Or Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, or Neil deGrasse Tyson. All of those guys are atheists. And they come out and they try to explain away God and his existence. There are some really good guys out there now that talk about evolution and how evolution cannot take place, and they take it all the way down to the cellular level, and they are just running roughshod over the evolutionists which are out there. And we need to pay attention to those guys, what they're doing, and some of the language gets so highfalutin, I don't even understand where they're going with some of their terminology when it comes to chemical reactions and the cell coming together and forming life. But it is just a steamroller of a subject that is out there now and evolutionists do not have a retort. And the only thing that they do is they get involved in ad hominem attacks, which is if you can't explain away the facts that are there that are going against your particular view, what do you do? You attack the person. And that's what happens in a lot of these debates because the the debates are getting so good with the Christian side or they would claim to be deist to everybody else that they believe a designer had to make everything that exists. And just imagine some of these people, if they got saved. Now, one particular guy, Lawrence Krauss, I don't know if you know who he is, but it's not really Lawrence Krauss. Lawrence Krauss is Lawrence Kurt. He, he, He is just in your face he wears these tennis shoes and he's pointing at the christians and he belittles them and he is arrogant and i just want to pray for the guy that if he got saved just imagine how god could turn him around or neil degrasse tyson he is so confident when you listen to him if you don't know who these guys are you should become familiar with them because they're part of our culture They're the ones who are standing up against God. They're rising themselves up. And Satan, I believe, is using him as well to dissuade people from coming to the truth that is salvation in Jesus Christ. What a testimony it would be for them. So if you don't know who they are, I invite you to look them up on YouTube and become familiar with them. Now going on in verse 6 of chapter 26 of the book of Acts, it says, And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is a promise of 12 tribes, or this is the promise, our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. 
O king, referring to Agrippa, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? We have to put context to this. Remember, there is a lawyer who probably spoke Latin and Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic named Tertullus, and he went with Ananias to bring this case against Paul. Ananias was a Sadducee. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not want any opposition to that, although they couldn't help it with the Pharisees because there were more Pharisees than there were Sadducees, and they served together. They were both Jews, but there was this tension between them. And so Ananias basically wanted to wipe out Paul's testimony. In other words, he wanted to cancel Paul. Are you familiar with that today? The cancel culture, if you say something that does not agree with the narrative which is out there, you are canceled. It was back then too. Kill somebody who does not toe the line of what we believe and what we teach. Now as Christians, we're guilty of this as well. If you go back through the history of the Christian church, if you didn't follow what Augustine said, they would kill you. Martin Luther, there was a, a price on his life. Uh, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther back in the 16th century. They wanted to take his life because he went to the uh, the Wittenberg door and put up his 95 thesis and said, this is the things I want to talk about inside the church. And one of them was indulgences. And that's how the Catholic church got rich. You just pay for some, uh, some um, indulgence. And if you do that, you get time out of purgatory, which they also made up. So they kept the people wrapped up in bondage and they wouldn't give them the word. And so when... Uh, Tyndale, when he came out with his version of the Bible that the average person could read, well, he has to die. And, and all of these people who were trying to get the word out that weren't towing the line to keep the power inside the Catholic Church, they just killed them. Now, they're not the only ones. All through history, Christian history, there have been Christians that have run into error because somebody taught something that wasn't in line with the narrative that was being spoken at the time. So, They didn't believe in the resurrection, but that's what Paul said was the hope of our 12 tribes. And he said, our, identifying with the 12 tribes of Israel. This is our hope, the resurrection. Well, for us, it is our hope too. We believe that one day, if we don't get raptured, we will die we will be placed into the ground or we will be cremated and scattered at sea or hung on a shelf, whatever the case might be, but we are going to be resurrected. Whatever molecules made you up, God is going to bring those molecules back together and how he's going to do that exactly, I don't know, because when you die, your body goes to the ground. Your ground, The ground makes your body into mulch. The mulch goes in the, the molecules to the grass. The grass goes in the mouth of the cow. You eat the cow. And how is God going to put that all together? Look, it's not hard. If he created the universe, it's no problem for him to recreate our bodies the way that they are. They'll be a little better, a little more fit, a little thinner, you know, all that. But he's going to reconstitute our bodies when we die. Everyone who has ever existed will have their bodies reconstituted. Some for eternal life, some for eternal punishment. But they are going to be reconstituted. We are created in the image of God, which means we will live forever That's part of being created in the image of God. So we will be resurrected and receive our new incorruptible bodies. 
And so the Sadducees didn't want to hear that, probably because of their sinful lifestyle. They didn't want to have to be held accountable after they die. And remember, I talked about this previously, whether it's the Bema Seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, or it's the great white throne judgment at the end of the book of Revelation, there's going to be a judgment of both the living, those who have eternal life, and the dead, those who will not live with God forever. We're all going to be judged. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, for me, that causes me a little bit of fear. God of the universe, he's going to call me forward. Bill, what did you do? You know, we do that to our kids. What did you do? You know, he's probably going to say it like that. And our sins may be run through videotape or how the, uh, however it's done. I don't know. Or he may just say, whatever your sins were, they're forgiven. And then we're going to be rewarded or we'll suffer lack of reward for whatever reason, according to first Corinthians chapter three. And so that's the fate that awaits all of us. And we need to keep that right in the forefront that we fear God and we try to do what is right, although none of us are going to be perfect. And I think most of us are going to get up there and the rest of us are going to turn and look at you and go, no. And then we're going to get up there and go, no. Yeah, we're going to have the same problem because we're all sinners. And God will say, Jesus will say, I know, but you trusted me to save you from that life. And he'll say, enter into your rest, thou faithful servant. And that's what we're looking for. That's our great hope, that all of our sins are just going to be wiped away. Sadducees didn't believe in that. No, when you die, that's it. It's over. Out of the pool, game over, the buzzer sounds, you're done. It's like going to sleep and not dreaming. You'll never wake up. That's called the doctrine of total annihilation. Sadducees held to that. There's still cults that hold to that today, that a righteous judge would not suffer somebody to go through punishment for all of eternity. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that, in fact, that is the case. Now, all the world pretty much believes that there is an afterlife except for the atheist. And they usually scream a little louder because they don't want it to be true because of the way that they live their lives. Not that they're not moral, that they have some type of moral hedge that confines them where they should go, but if there is no God, there is no morality. And that's a subject for another time that I could go through. But if you go to the world religions like the Buddhist, they believe that there's countless births and deaths until you gain enlightenment. And it's really a godless religion You go up to be one with the collective and the universe and you're just all together as one. Your energy just goes up there. And all suffering, that's what we all suffer here and you're supposed to divest yourself of the thought of suffering, take away all pleasure and you just simply arise to the next level. Same thing with Hinduism. They believe that same thing. Islam, they believe in the death and resurrection that some people will go to heaven and some people will go to hell. And so if you take the monotheistic religions, we all believe, we hold to, that there is a death and a resurrection that will take place. This isn't all that there is. Now, just a a personal note, a testimony. And I give these testimonies because you have testimonies as well that you can give to other people 
to give them insight or encouragement. And I, I can remember very clearly, I was about 12 or 13, sitting in my desk, it was a metal desk, in my room at my parents' house. And my grandmother had just died. And I came to the realization that we die. You know, I, I had seen my uncle who had died in a coffin when I was about three and I didn't understand that. But then my grandmother died. We loved our grandmother. She died. And I remember sitting there with the single light on, one of those gooseneck lights, and I was doing homework. And I started thinking about her death. And I said to myself, why? And the question that I asked was, what is the point if we live here and we just die and we're done? And I really didn't know the Christian terminology or doctrine about this. And at that point, I was taught to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And then God bless everybody you know, that's out there. And I said, God, why? What's the point? I want to know. Well, he answered me. He, he gave me the information. He told me why. And you know, he didn't come down and say, Bill, he didn't do that, but he told me through the word and through people, I got the explanation for why we live and why we die. It is not pointless. There is a point to this. And so the Sadducees did not want to have the point. Now, the Sadducees should have understood that there's going to be a resurrection, but they, it's almost as if uh, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. They were putting their fingers in their ears, covering their eyes, and, and the, covering their mouth. They didn't want to hear anything about the resurrection. Therefore, Paul is up on trial for the resurrection, preaching that Jesus rose from the dead, and we too will rise from the dead. In the Old Testament, you had the widow of Zarephath. Her son died, if you remember in First Kings chapter 17. There was a drought that came upon the land. Elijah was told to go to this woman. God had commanded this woman to feed Elijah during the length of the drought. And she said, you know, I know you're a prophet, but I was just going to go home and bake the little jar of a flour that I had, a little uh, container of oil. I was going to mix it together for me and my son, and then we're going to go home and die. And Elijah said, go home, fix the bread for me and also for yourselves. And when she went home, the jar never ran out. It was a small jar and she was able to bake the bread and it sustained her and her son and Elijah for that whole time. Well, during that time, the son of this widow died. He got sick, sicker and sicker and, and just eventually he expired. And so the woman came to him and said, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? So she's obviously upset. Well, so what did he do? He took the child and that child, he ended up praying for the child and the child was resuscitated, not resurrected, but resuscitated. That child eventually would have to die again died twice. Also the Shunamite, Shunamite woman and her son uh, as a result of 
uh, Elisha being with this woman, this woman set up a room that he could go to and live whenever he was in town, him and his servant Gehazi. And so they did, but then this woman didn't have a child, and so Elisha would said, you're going to have a child. Had the child, the child grew over the years. Uh, the Elijah would show up with Gehazi, and eventually the son, he said, oh, my head, it hurts, and he died. The same thing happened with Elisha. Elisha prayed for the boy, and he resuscitated. He came back from the dead. He was totally comatose. He was totally just cold as he could possibly be. And Elijah prayed for him. Three times he stretched out over the boy, hand to hand, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, prayed for him. And then the boy sneezed seven times, and he recovered. And Gehazi took the boy back to the mother. Then also there was an Israelite, you know, Elisha had died and was thrown into a tomb. And normally what they did is the person died and after they would be placed in the tomb, the body would decompose and they would go in years later, maybe a decade or two, and they'd take the bones and put the bones in an ossuary, a box that was there. And then they'd stick that box inside a cave, a, a tomb of some kind. Well, some Israelites were out there and they were... Uh, preparing to bury a body in the tomb. And what happened was Moabite raiders were coming into the area. They saw him. They thought they better get out of there. And so they took the body. And they just said, let's just throw it in there and get out of here. So they took the body, threw it in the cave. It ended up probably hitting the ossuary. The ossuary broke open. The dead body hit the bones. And the guy came back to life. It's like, whoa. I don't recommend you try anything like that. But it's this idea that people in the Old Testament were resuscitated, brought back to life when they had previously died. Now, if you went to the New Testament, in the New Testament, there's plenty of examples of this. The widow of Nain, her son in Luke chapter 7, Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, the leader of the synagogue, Lazarus and Dorcas, all kinds of people were raised from the dead. These are only the ones we know about. There were probably dozens of other people that had died that were prayed for and were raised from the dead, resuscitated. That's different than resurrected. The resurrected body lives forever, never dies again. All of these people who were resuscitated died twice. Could you imagine waking up going, what? Where am I? And you find out you're alive again. Oh, by the way, it's great to have you back, but you're going to die again. You know, what, what kind of news is that? But they had to do that simply for the testimony that God wanted them to have being brought back to life. And remember when Jesus was crucified, what happened? People came out of the tombs that were dead. Like, whoa, that was a ride. And then they go back to the house. It's Uncle Harry. No way, it's a ghost. No, I'm alive. And he would have to explain to them, I don't know how this is possible, but I'm alive again. So there is a history of people being raised from the dead. And even Ananias knew that Lazarus was dead for three days. Remember Martha said, or Mary said, he stinketh, Lord. You know, he's putrid, he's rotting, his body is inflaming. And by the way, it's a habit in Israel for the Jews to, to bury a body within 24 hours. And so he was dead, dead in there. And Ananias knew that he rose from the dead. And so the question, again, that Paul asks he says, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? 
And so this is a testimony against Ananias, but yet Ananias doesn't want to hear it. He wants to cancel Paul and do away with him. Now, there are resurrection eternal life verses in the Old Testament. This one I think you'll recognize. Job 19, 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. We sing that song, right? So Job knew that even after his flesh was destroyed, he would be resurrected and he would see God. Isaiah twenty six nineteen. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. It taught that there is an Old Testament resurrection for the Old Testament saints. Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there's going to be a time where people live with God. Psalm 73, 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you take me into glory. Psalm 49, verse 15, but God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. And Daniel 12, 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's plenty of verses to know that in the Old Testament you would be resurrected from the dead if you died, if you were a believer in God. So how is it that Ananias and the Sadducees would say there's no resurrection from the dead? It's simply because a person wants to eisegete the scripture, not exegete. Eisegete means I have this big square peg And in the round hole of the scripture, I'm going to force my view into it. To do that, you have to shear off the sides of the square to get it to fit into the hole. And the harder you ram that doctrine in there, the better it fits for you. And it's nice and tight, right? It's not the round peg that fits in the round hole. You're trying to make a doctrine appeal and stand and be dogmatic when in fact the scripture says different. Now, this happens on a regular basis. This is one reason why we have so many denominations. Should you baptize by dunking fully, hold them on, make sure that their sin is completely out the last airdrop and then bring them up right before death? Is that what you do? Or can you pour on there? Or can you sprinkle? Is that acceptable? I don't know if you've seen the Eastern Orthodox where they take the baby and there's a, a baptismal font right there. They take the baby and they whoosh and they take the baby out. And the, and the baby's going, Aah! just crying. I've seen it where they have dropped the baby. I've seen it like craziness. But anyhow, they have these own particular doctrines which are out there that are not listed in scripture. And it's the way they interpret the scripture. Now, this last week, well, first, before, before I say that, There were the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees, there were the Essenes during the time of Paul and Jesus, and they had their own theologies, which were out there. And they varied just a little bit. We have that today inside the church. Like, for instance, most churches don't believe in the rapture. I believe in the rapture, I believe in the millennial reign of Christ. Now, this last week, I had the opportunity to speak to somebody from a different faith tradition. Not a Calvary chapel. This is another faith tradition. And they believe that you are saved 
through water baptism. And this person was kind enough to sit down and we were going back and forth and we were having a friendly conversation. And this was in the youth group. Somebody is going to this particular church and, and I said, you know what would be great is to have that person who's teaching you some things that we don't agree with to come in and sit down and talk. And it's Church of Christ. And the person agreed to come. Super nice guy. I mean, just a great guy. And I sat down and I said, you know, we all believe different things, but we are brothers in Christ. And I affirmed it to all the kids in there. I said, he's a Christian just like I'm a Christian. We're both going to heaven. Now, I don't know that he would say that because I don't attend the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ believes that you have to be baptized in their church, and some of them in the name of Jesus only, not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's when you receive the Holy Spirit. Once you have received the Holy Spirit, you are saved, but that only comes through water baptism. And so I explained that we have differences of opinion, but we are both saved. And it's good to talk about these without arguing back and forth, just simply stating what you believe based on the proper interpretation of Scripture. So we, we didn't get very far. Uh, I asked them to return so we could go through some more of these things. But one of the students that are in there is attending a church on Sunday and attending youth with us, and they had questions. They would come back to me, and so that's when I extended the invitation. And they graciously agreed to come. And um, I have his number, and we'll probably be in more communication, and I think it's good. And, and so this idea of being baptized in order to be saved, I went to simply one section of Scripture, and I asked the question, I said, so if we're saved by water baptism, if I can find a place in Scripture where somebody got saved without being baptized, because you know Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And it seems to say, you have to repent and be baptized, and then you're going to be saved. And of course, they went to that one, and they went to Romans 6, and they went to Galatians 3, and they were pointing out how it seems to say, Baptism plus confession and repentance, that's what gets you saved. I said, so if I can find a case where somebody wasn't water baptized and they were saved and then got water baptized, would you agree with me that it's possible to be saved without water baptism? And they, yeah, okay. So I had everybody in the room turn to Acts chapter 10. I want you to do that. Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, this is an example. In 10 and 11, a person gets saved. His name is Cornelius. And he gets saved before he gets water baptized. In Acts chapter 10, verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, would you say that if somebody is speaking in tongues, they receive the Holy Spirit, are they saved? Well, Scripture says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. 
So if we have the Spirit of God, we are saved. Then it goes on. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? Ooh. So somebody got saved before they were water baptized. And so we ended up going off in the conversation a little bit in a different direction, but the time was running out. I said, I just want to wrap this up before we, we break. And I said, would you agree with me that Cornelius and all the other people who were in his household had the Holy Spirit fall on them and they were saved at that point, then later got water baptized. Would you agree with me? What do you think the answer was? I'll have to look at that. You know, and I've had this before when it comes to the rapture of the church. You know, I give evidence. It's not a Johnny-come-lately doctrine. And I've had that take place where I gave it to this tile worker guy on a particular job. And he just, well, I'll have to look at that. Because he was explaining that it was never taught in the church. And so I got him the Shepherd of Hermes. And in the Shepherd of Hermes, which was created in the first century, it says the church is not going to go through the tribulation. Well, I'll have to look at that. I said, can't you just say that there was this doctrine taught at that particular time? Well, maybe. You see, this is the problem that would have been with Ananias. He was not willing to buy into what Scripture said. And and I've watched these videos uh, called Ask Cliff, C-L-I-F-F-E. And he goes to universities and he talks with the students in a live back and forth. And these students bring up all their objections to the gospel of Jesus Christ and who he is and being God. And it, it, sometimes it gets a little raucous going back and forth, but he makes a good case. I don't agree with everything, but most of what he says, I agree with what he says to the students. And they're just going back and forth. And you can tell some of the students, they just will not believe. They will not hold to what he is saying. They, they refuse to do so, even though he makes logical arguments. You know, so... What was going on in in this idea that there is no resurrection? The Sadducees rejected. The idea that this gentleman who came and talked about being saved and water baptized would not accept readily, even though it said it in the scriptures, just like the resurrection and resuscitation of individuals, would not accept it at that point. Just like the students at the university would not accept it, even though there were witnesses, like going into court of law, Paul was being a witness, just like Cliff, he's being a witness to the university, just like in the youth group, being a witness of what the scripture has to say, but people say, yeah, I'm going to have to check that out, it's right there, you know, if you had something like, the sky is blue, you go outside, you see the sky is blue, and the person goes out and says, I don't know, maybe it's blue, uh, but I'll have to look at it. Well, it's right there. Some of these things are clearly obvious. If we are going to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, we want to make sure that our witness stands out. I know we're running close here to the time where we need to receive communion. But, Daryl, could you show that first picture? Do you guys know what this is? This is Arabic. And this is a letter in Arabic. And it's an N and it's pronounced noon. And the reason this N is on a shirt is because the N stands for Nazarene. And the people that were in Mosul, when the Taliban came back in, they were given 
a choice. The choice was those who are Christians. They were given a choice to either convert to Islam, pay a tax, and that's what they would do to both Jews and Christians who were captured, or be killed. And during that time, in Mosul, and it went worldwide, people would wear this shirt. And it basically says, I am a Christian. I will stand for Christ. Grab one of these shirts. If you can order one online, you can get one at Amazon. And wear it to a Muslim event. Oh, yeah, that would be a witness, wouldn't it? it? But people are doing this. They're wearing these shirts and they're being witnessed or witnessing to the people who are out there. Are you willing to be that kind of witness? Paul was on trial for his life because he wanted to witness for Jesus Christ. All I would say for you to do is wear a shirt. That's it. Just wear a shirt. And if you go to somewhere, if you went to the mosque down on, uh, in Kearney Mesa and you walked in with that, would they accept you? Would they reject you? Would you have a chance to have a conversation? You betcha. You would. My prayer is that you would not shrink back even in the face of dif- difficulty of being a witness for Christ because we know what it means. We know that we get to live forever after we die in this life. And that's what God has called us to be. He has called us to be a witness. Now, I have more to say about this next week. But what we're going to do at this point is I'm going to go over and I'm going to play a song. And if you're sure that you're saved, wonderful. I I want you to just give God thanks for the fact that he gave us his word, that he saved us, that we have a chance to be a witness to others. And there's going to be a time where we're going to be together and it's going to be wonderful in heaven. All the people that we knew that have gone before us, like Luann, we'll see her in heaven. And and it'll be a great reunion time. I doubt if there will be, I don't think there's going to be a dry eye in the house of God at that point. That's our hope. That's what we have for, uh, to look to in in the future. If you're not sure if you're saved, simply ask God to save you. That's it. You already no, you've heard me say several times Romans 9, 10, and 11, and also uh, Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. And that tells us how to be saved. But if you're not sure, just say, God, save me, and then give him thanks for saving you. So what we're going to do, I'm going to go over here, grab the guitar, and we're going to turn down the lights in the center. And after you receive the communion, because it's going to be passed out, I'd ask that you'd hold on to it. After the song is done, Pat will come up. And he will pray for both the cup and the bread and will remember or have a memorial about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ.